Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies on Air. As always, I am your host, Catherine Knuckles Wild, and today we are going to be talking about two separate topics that blend in together. We're going to be talking about Olmec art and culture and the site of Chalcatzingo. Now, if you've read my blog posts on these two topics, then you generally know more or less what we're going to be talking about. But if you have not, then you're in for a real treat. This is a fantastic talk. Um, if you do understand Spanish, I have an interview with an archaeologist who works at Chalcatzingo that came out last week that's just spectacular, and I really recommend it if you're interested and can understand Spanish. In my blog post, I briefly describe the Olmec culture and place it into context alongside other cultures of Mesoamerica. In today's episode, we're going to go over what we know about Olmec culture, mostly through its art. Not much is actually known about the people who left us the beautiful, monumental art of the Olmec. However, what we can put together from archaeological context tells us that the Olmec thrived in the Gulf Coast area of Mexico from around 1800 BC to sometime around 400 BC. Although Michael Coe suggested in his book, Mexico from the Olmec to the Aztecs, that the Olmec might have been a Mayan-speaking group that expanded from the Gulf of Mexico to the eastern Yucatan Peninsula, Confirmation of this hasn't been found yet. Important Olmec sites include San Lorenzo, La Venta, El Malatí, Tres Zapotes, and Laguna de los Cerros. At these sites, we find evidence of a strong and powerful civilization that had access to stone drainage, long-distance trade, and large-scale architecture. The leaders of these sites were powerful enough to commission monumental works of art made from stone found hundreds of kilometers away. And, typical of the pre-classic, we see class distinctions beginning to appear. At San Lorenzo, for example, archaeologists have uncovered evidence that the city center, placed on a hilltop, was the home to many elite residences, while lower-class residences would have been built down below on the plain. Evidence of the Olmec artistic style has been found throughout the rest of Mesoamerica, including central Mexico and the Pacific coast of Mexico and Guatemala. Perhaps the most well-known examples of this art are the colossal heads found at different sites. The monumentality and sheer volume of these objects display many of the characteristics of Olmec art. Bold, broad lines that create volume and a full round shape. Round curves instead of sharp geometric angles and a lack of excessive detail, which adds to the monumental feel of even the smallest pieces. Olmec art shows humans, deities, and transformations between the two. Although scholars used to think that these transformations represented a race of humanoid creatures descending from a woman who copulated with a jaguar, this theory has been thoroughly debunked. Now, these transformation figures are seen as religious or political leaders who shift from human to animal form and vice versa. They're characterized by a cleft head, symbolizing corn emerging from the earth and down-curling lips, sometimes accented by large fangs. So what do we learn from Olmec art? Although we might not know as much about the Olmec from archaeological context as we know about later groups, the art left behind does tell a lot about this culture. For example, we know that the concept of human-animal transformation was widely known and represented, and must have been important at least to community leaders. Second, the art has given various representations of deities belonging to the Olmec culture. 
These deities are frequently associated with elements of nature, like rain or lightning or corn, and they were likely invoked in order to ensure a plentiful harvest. Finally, the sheer monumentality of Olmec art and its ubiquitous nature throughout Mesoamerica testifies to the complex society that created these works of art. These are not the creations of small villages, but rather of thriving complex societies with social stratification and abundance. Through the monumental art left behind, we can overcome the lack of other data and get a glimpse into the Olmec world. So that's a brief summary of what we know about the Olmec culture through its art. But let's take a look at another aspect of the pre-classic period, the site of Chalcatzingo. The pre-classic site of Chalcatzingo is located in central Mexico, in modern-day Morelos. This site is formed by igneous rock and forms a pass by which travelers could access Puebla to the east, where vast resources were found. Given this ideal location, Chalcatzingo was an important axis of trade, dubbed by archaeologist Michael Coe as the most important highland Olmec site. However, it doesn't appear to have begun as a clearly Olmec site. The archaeologist who excavated most of Chalcatzingo, David Grove, estimates that the site was founded by 1500 BC and flourished around 700 years later, coinciding with the apogee of the Olmec site of Laventa. This correlation with Olmec sites suggests that Chalcatzingo experienced large amounts of trade from the Olmec heartland in the Gulf Coast, and possible marriage alliances as well. Scholars tend to favor a more friendly relationship between Chalcatzingo and the Gulf Coast, rather than one built on conquest or invasion. These relationships didn't only benefit Chalcatzingo economically, they also influenced the site's artistic expression. It's during the point of highest interaction and influence that we see Olmec artistic style appear at Chalcatzingo. So let's talk a little bit about that monumental art and the rock carvings that we see at this site. Art at Chalcatzingo consists of monumental petroglyphs, images carved into large boulders along the site's periphery. Perhaps the most famous example of these petroglyphs is Petroglyph or Monument 1, known rather incorrectly as El Rey or the King. In fact, the figure shown in the image is female, indicated by the skirt she wears. This figure appears to be a leader or a governor, and holds a ceremonial bar in her arms. She sits within a cave that emits mist and wind, and above her fall raindrops and precious jade circles. The scene appears to allude to a ruler petitioning the gods for fertility and abundance for her people. Monument 9 clarifies the odd shape of the cave in which the ruler sits. Currently kept in a private collection, it's made in the shape of a doorway of sorts, formed in a quatrefoil or four-lobed shape. The center of this monument is carved out, so the people, likely rulers, could walk in and out of it. This suggests that it functioned in a similar fashion as that suggested on Monument 1, as a place where a ruler could enter into the heart of the earth and petition for rainfall. Other scenes at Chalcatzingo show feline figures, both standing under falling raindrops and in the process of attacking human figures. These images, less understood than others at Chalcatzingo, appear to also be associated with supplications for rain. This is confirmed by the fact that during the rainy season, water cascades in torrents down the mountainsides, 
creating rivers and rivulets of water that course alongside these monumental petroglyphs. Work continues today at Chalcatzingo. As I mentioned before, our interview for Chalcatzingo is actually done with a Mexican archaeologist who excavated directly at the site of Chalcatzingo. That interview is in Spanish, though, so you'll need to understand Spanish in order to listen to the interview. But if you do, check it out. It's a really fantastic interview. Um, Omar Espinosa is so passionate about his work, and that really comes through. Well, we've gone over a brief introduction to the pre-classic period in the last few episodes. In the next episode, we're going to dive into the classic period, where things start to shake up and take a different shape. We'll talk about similar themes of social stratification, precious materials, art, and culture. But, as you'll see, it'll be different from this pre-classic period that we've been talking about so far. If you've loved the pre-classic period and would like to hear more about it, please go to my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron so that you can have a say in upcoming episodes. I'll let you tell me what you want to hear about in future seasons. So, as always, thank you for listening to this episode, and I'll see you in the next episode.